This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Long Black Line by John LaRue, which was published in The New Yorker in May of 2018. Feelings, Father Superior explained, are always to be distrusted. Jesuits are men of the will. The story was chosen by Kirsten Valdez Quaid, whose first story collection, Night at the Fiestas, was published in 2015. Hi, Kirsten. Hi, Deborah. John Leroux died last April, and I, I know you were a student of his at Stanford, and his mentorship meant a lot to you. Can you talk about that a little? It did mean so much to me. Um, John's class was, I think, the first classroom I walked into um, in my freshman fall at Stanford. <laughs> um, it was for a freshman seminar on the American short story, um, and I'd applied to be in it, and was beyond excited when, <laughs> when um, I showed up that first day. And John was, um, at that point, he was Professor Leroux to me. And um, <laughs> he, he was a brilliant teacher, a stern teacher. He could be intimidating. He was witty and just incredibly, incredibly generous to me. He was generous in his line comments on our our essays. Um, he was generous outside of class. I was on financial aid and didn't have a lot of extra spending money for books. And a few times over the course of my college career, I'd get an email that there was a box of books waiting for me outside his office. And it was through John that I first read Penelope Fitzgerald and um, J.M. Kutzea. He gave me short story anthologies. I, yeah, I was so lucky to have met him early in my career. And then we stayed in touch. And when I returned to Stanford as a Stegner fellow, he came out of retirement to teach one last workshop. It had nothing to do with me. It was because they, <laughs> they were in need of a faculty member. And so I got to be in his last workshop at Stanford. And had you had you read his work before you started studying with him? No, I mean, at that point, I was 18 and yeah, <laughs> read yeah. a fairly limited <laughs> number of contemporary writers after, after I definitely did and really loved his work for the humor in it the, and the, the humanity and, um, you know, both, both of which we see in spades in this story. Mm -hmm. What made you choose this story, The Long Black Line? When my issue of the New Yorker arrived. Um, usually as I go up the steps to my apartment, I sort of flip through to see who wrote the fiction, the short story. And I saw that it was John's and I sat down immediately. I think I started reading it before I'd unlocked my door. <laughs> and um, I was just drawn into it so, so completely. And I laughed out loud and then it turns and, and you know, suddenly I was weeping it's just such a compassionate story and such a, it's a difficult story. It's about, you know, there's harshness in it. Um, and, and yet it's compassionate and affirming. John was a, was a Jesuit priest for 17 years and the story draws on that experience, though it's not directly about him. You also often includes religious practices and iconography in your work. Do you think that was a, a point of connection for you? 
I think it was. You know, in my in the workshops I took with him as an undergraduate, I don't think I wrote explicitly about um, religion and faith. That came a bit later, um, but certainly when when I was in his class again later um, after graduate school, absolutely. I mean, I think it meant that we're attuned to um, some of the same things in the world that, you know, and some of the same questions. I, I, I can't speak for him, but at, at least for me, you know, what, what, where are the failings of the rules <laughs> the, the, um, that the church sets down, this institution that is meant to be based on compassion, where it can be so cruel? Do you think of the story or, or John's work in general, do you, do you think of him as a moralist? I don't think of him as a moralist. No, I mean, I, th- I think I think he's so ethical and so committed to looking closely at his characters and to being generous with his characters. But I don't he he doesn't judge them. I mean, his characters judge themselves and they judge other right. people, but right. um, he doesn't. Yeah. So we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Kirsten Valdez Quaid reading The Long Black Line by John LaRue. The Long Black Line Brothers Finn said an awkward goodbye to his parents and watched them drive off in the new Buick they had bought in case he changed his mind. They were pleased, of course, at Finn's decision to study for the priesthood, but they were wary, too. It was 1954, and priests were still thought to be holy, and Finn, well, Finn knew that he wasn't holy. But during a retreat in college, he had succumbed to a fit of piety and, dizzied by the idea of sacrifice, applied to join the Jesuits. They had put him through a series of interviews and let him know that he seemed altogether too caught up in theater, but in the end they had accepted him. So now here he was, almost a Jesuit, and this annoying brother Riley kept calling him brother. Brother Riley had given him a short tour of the public areas, the chapel, the guest parlor, the dining hall, and then escorted him to the front veranda where the other postulants had gathered to admire the grounds. A green lawn cascaded down the hill to a small wilderness of trees with a lake beyond. Everyone agreed that it was beautiful. They stood in little groups, sweating in their jackets and ties, while the novices, the real Jesuits, made awkward attempts at conversation. Finn introduced himself to the group around Brother Riley, and, after the expected handshaking, silence descended. Finn was not good with silence, so he cleared his throat and wondered aloud if they all felt as strange as he did in his jacket and tie. There was eager agreement and a little self-conscious laughter that encouraged him to wonder further when they would get to wear a cassock. If it's okay to ask, he said. A habit, Brother Finn, not a cassock, Brother Riley said quietly, a gentle rebuke. Sorry, a habit, Finn said. But when? In good time, Brother Finn. Finn realized he should shut up, but he couldn't help himself, and, attempting friendliness, he said, Just call me Finn. Brother Finn creeps me out. Brother Riley, with a show of patience, explained that in the Jesuit order, all novices were called brother. He pointed them out, Brother Quirk, Brother Matthews, Brother Lavelle, etc., 
And then, lapsing from charity, he added, "'You are now my brother, Brother Finn, and I don't like it any more than you do.' Nervous laughter, a fit of coughing from Brother Lavelle, and then silence. Finn blushed and muttered to himself, "'I have always depended on the kindness of strangers.' That night, Brother Riley made a note in his Maniaductor diary about Brother Finn's singularity, Jesuit speak for self-importance, and he added, I wonder how long Brother Finn will be among us. Then, during examination of conscience, Brother Riley went to confession and accused himself of disedifying conduct, sins against charity, and anger against one of his new brothers. Anger was a habitual failing, he admitted. He would try harder. Brother Riley had been appointed manuductor, he who leads by the hand, because even now, as a second-year novice, he was brusque and withdrawn, inclined to hang back from group activities. He had served as a Marine in Korea, and he remained gaunt and hungry-looking, with an intensity that seemed to border on the dangerous. His superiors had judged that he was ill-suited to the role of manuductor, and that therefore it would be a useful trial for him and an instructive one for the novices. Feelings, Father Superior explained, are always to be distrusted. Jesuits are men of the will. The good Jesuit may feel excited or depressed, but, remember, he never shows it. He is never singular. He disappears into the long black line. This was a talk that Father enjoyed giving. It was essential that novices learn self-denial, and denial of feelings came first. Agere contra, to act against. Here is your safeguard against the dangers of feeling. If you feel sad, smile. If you feel elated, exercise self-restraint. If you dislike someone, pray for him. Take note of his virtues. Imagine that he has virtues even if he has none. Agere contra. Be a man of the will. Finn listened, eager and anxious, certain that they would never have let him in if they knew what a shit he was. But maybe this was a feeling he should just ignore, by an act of will. Brother Riley must be a holy man, Brother Quirk said to Finn. What makes you think that? Well, they chose him as manuductor, and he never violates silence. Maybe he just has nothing to say. Finn thought for a moment and added, That was uncharitable of me. I'm sorry. Brother Lavelle cleared his throat and spat. Brother Quirk and Brother Lavelle and Finn had been assigned weeding duty during recreation, weeding the tomato patch, where there were in fact no weeds, and, since they were outside the house, talking was allowed. Inside the house, talking was forbidden, except in emergencies, and then you had to speak in Latin. If your Latin wasn't good, you were expected to learn it or shut up. Also, he was in Korea, Brother Quirk said. God help the Koreans, Finn said. Then, to change the subject, he added, These tomatoes are on their last legs. What do you think, Lavelle? Brother Lavelle never talked, but now he sat back on his heels and said slowly, deliberately, I think this whole fucking thing is a mistake. He stood up and looked around. Christ, he said, and without asking anyone's permission, he walked back to the house. Finn, for once, remained silent, but later he noticed that Brother Lavelle was absent from dinner and evening prayers. 
one down, Finn said, as they left chapel that night. Brother Riley heard him and gave him a hard, knowing look. In conference, Father Superior explained the use of what were facetiously called scroop beads, a tiny string of beads attached to a safety pin and worn inside the habit allowed you, unobtrusively, to pull down a single bead each time you broke silence or sinned against charity or had an unkind thought. The beads kept you scrupulously aware, hence scroop, of your failings and came in handy at the twice-daily examination of conscience. Wearing them was, of course, optional. Finn waited for Father Superior to say, just joking, but Father Superior was not given to jokes. The new men, still wearing jackets and ties, finally began their eight-day retreat. The silence was absolute, and time stretched out endlessly before them. Their world contracted to an intense focus on Father Superior's conferences, three a day, followed by an hour of private meditation as they tried to engage each of their five senses in the day's topic, sin, heaven and hell, the life and teachings of Christ, the gospel mysteries, the wonders of living the Christian life. Finn thought of Brother Lavelle. Maybe this was all a fucking mistake. But as the eight days passed, he found himself surrendering to the power of silence and meditation. Most nights he lay awake while the others slept. On the last night of the eight nights, his mind wandered from Christ's resurrection and the empty tomb to the summer theater in Vermont. Jillian Cantrell had been his girlfriend that summer, a sophomore at Brown. She was a good actress, full of life and wit, and she was very sexy, too sexy for him. Jillian, sexy Jillian. He thought of his last night with her. He found that he was getting aroused and forced himself to think of Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb. The problem was that Finn had always wanted to be an actor. He had spent the summer after high school studying at the New Theatre Academy in New York, and after his first year of college he had acted in summer stock in Vermont. Acting was fun. Acting was thrilling. In his sophomore year, he'd acted in every play the drama department had put on. At the same time, he'd had this secret life in which he gave himself over to prayer— one night, on his way back from the library, he'd decided to make a quick stop at the college chapel. The place was dark, with only the red sanctuary light blinking next to the altar. It was sort of spooky, and Finn was glad that nobody could see him. He knelt in the back pew and closed his eyes. After a while, he felt foolish, as if he were faking some kind of piety, and he decided to leave. But when he opened his eyes, he was startled to see the flickering red altar light move toward him. He blinked and it moved again. The dark, and the single red light moving toward him in that dark. It had to be an optical illusion. But for a moment his heart stumbled, and, looking back, he knew that that was when he'd seen it clearly. Acting was not enough. The best thing he could do with his life was sacrifice it and what better way to sacrifice it than as a Jesuit? Suddenly, from the bed nearest the door, there came a terrible shout. It was more than a shout. It was a wail of pure terror, and it seemed to go on and on, before trailing away into silence. Someone turned on the light. Someone else said, It's Brother Riley. It's the manuductor. Brother Riley, the manuductor, still fighting his way out of his dream, 
pulled himself together and said in a shaking voice, Everything's fine. There's nothing the matter. He turned off the light, saying, Sleep, everybody. And he left the room. Incredibly, they all slept, even Finn. The next morning, their trial period behind them, the new novices were accepted into the common life of the Jesuit community. It was a free day, with a mass sung in the morning and a special feast in the evening and benediction before bed. Finn was at last a member of the long black line. Once in a dark wood. Brother Riley had had a fit. The word went around during laborandum, the afternoon work period. It happened once before, Brother Quirk said, when he was in his first year. It was worse, Brother Matthew said. He woke us all up howling. He dreams he's back in Korea. My brother was in Korea and my father was in the last war, in Germany, but they never wake up howling. I wonder why he does it, why it happens, I mean. It's a cross to bear, Brother Quirk paused, then added grimly. The real cross is that he may have to postpone vows. For a year. For howling? It's canon law. His mental state. His fits may be an impediment to ordination, like epilepsy or schizophrenia or even facial disfigurement. You mean if you're too ugly you can't be ordained? Finn doubted this. That would mean a lot of priests got through by accident. Father Taylor, for instance. Or Father Hansen. You'd be a close call yourself, Quirk. Very funny, Brother Finn. We should pray for Brother Riley, and we shouldn't be talking about it anyway. It's not charitable. Brother Riley, meanwhile, was resting in the infirmary. It was called rest, but he knew that, in fact, he was under observation. Superiors wanted to know if his fits were incapacitating, or if, as the neurologists had assured them, he was merely having flashbacks to the war. They should just wait and see, the doctor said. Brother Riley knew all about waiting. When he first applied to the Jesuits, he interviewed with the psychiatrist whose job it was to vet all incoming novices. And it emerged that, as a Marine Lance Corporal in Korea, Riley had spent a good deal of his downtime with local prostitutes. The psychiatrist thought it would be wise for Riley to see if he could get by without sex for a year, and so he recommended postponing entrance. Riley endured his year of chastity and applied again. This time he was approved by the psychiatrist. He was a dutiful novice, if quiet and withdrawn, but then one night he woke up screaming. It was his first fit, which he passed off as a bad dream. But now it had happened again. Finn was tempted to make a smart-ass remark about Riley, but for once he held his tongue. He was briefly proud of himself, then ashamed of his pride. Mentally, he pulled down a scroop bead. Brother Quirk was appointed manuductor. Suddenly he was everywhere, making announcements, reminding his brothers about changes to the schedule, posting a new demore notice. It was the same old schedule, but elaborately printed to resemble an illuminated manuscript and translated, unnecessarily, as regular order. Finn stood before the notice board, doing his rabbit imitation. 5.30, rise. 6 o'clock, visit chapel. 6.15 to 7 o'clock, meditation. 7 o'clock to 7.45, mass. 7.45 to 8 o'clock, breakfast. 8 o'clock to 8.30, free time. He drew a deep breath, 
The rest of the day was divided into blocks of time for conference, rosary, class, examination of conscience, lunch, two hours of assigned work, study, more meditation, dinner, chores, spiritual reading, a second examination of conscience, and finally at 9.30, following a last visit to chapel, bedtime. At least they give you time to hit the toilet, Finn said to anybody listening. And, as God would have it, that happened to be Brother Riley, who looked at him as if he were an insect. Finn's rabbit imitation had come to him during a visit to chapel. He was wondering what made Brother Quirk so annoying, and, with no shame at all, he stared at him. He looked like Bugs Bunny. His front teeth stuck out a little, and he had a nervous tick that sometimes made his lips twitch, just like a rabbit's. A pious rabbit with a pronounced Dorchester accent. Finn pushed his upper lip forward and exposed his front teeth, and for an awful moment he became Brother Quirk. It was unkind. He wouldn't do it again. But later, alone in a toilet stall, he tried it one more time, just for practice. Grace is God's free gift. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. God gives it to whom he wills. Finn knew this well, and he found it depressing. We can open ourselves to grace by constant prayer, but we can't merit it. It's given gratuitously. Finn's mind wandered. Was novitiate life making him infantile? Other men his age were fighting in Korea, and here he was on his knees, confessing to uncharitable thoughts. Whatever happened to making his life a sacrifice? It was visiting day. On the great south lawn, guests gathered in groups, anxious to greet the new Jesuit in the family, with his new black habit and his new air of holiness. Finn's group included just his parents and himself. They had brought him presents—a black sweater, winter gloves, a huge box of chocolates—and Finn thanked them lavishly. But he was proud of his new poverty, and couldn't resist telling them that gifts of any kind became common stock— we don't own anything. Isn't that wonderful? If someone needs a sweater, he just asks, and they'll give him this one. Oh, but we got it for you. There isn't any me anymore, Mother. Not like that. Her eyes filled, and she said, Don't. He's just being dramatic, Claire, his father said. Let it go. Finn bristled at dramatic, but he knew that his father was right and found himself blushing. I love the sweater, he said. Maybe they'll let me keep it. You don't want to ask for exceptions, his father said. A rule is a rule. It was the old family dynamic. His mother hurt and his father stepping in to lighten her disappointment and shift the blame to Finn. This was how it would go. She would be depressed tonight and need her tranquilizers. And his father would lie awake beside her, talking until she could finally get to sleep and the unspoken blame would be laid on guess who. Finn leaned over and kissed her on the cheek. My sweet old Muti, he said, she's the best. She raised a hand to protect herself, but Finn was determined to salvage their day. Come on, Momu, he said, and pretending to twist her ears, he made motor sounds. Start your engine, come on, lift off. Until she pushed him away, saying, people will see. But she laughed, and his father laughed, and so the visit was saved. The afternoon was made easier by brief visits from the young priest, Father Lomax, who taught the novices Latin, and by Father Spaulding, the old priest who taught them Greek. They said hello and welcome and goodbye, 
smiling and nodding as they moved on to the next group. They're all so nice, Finn's mother said. What about that young man, the one who showed us around last time? He was very nice. Brother Riley has fits. Oh, no. Finn thought, here's a good story. But he knew it was a story that he had no right to tell. He has screaming fits in the night, he said. That's awful. He had one a few weeks ago. He started screaming, and I mean major full-on screaming. It was the middle of the night, and we all woke up. We were terrified, you can't imagine. Riley, of all people. Then he stopped and everything went quiet, and he said, calm as could be. He said, everything's fine, there's nothing the matter, just go back to sleep. And he left the dorm and went down to the infirmary, and he was there for days. It was incredible. Finn paused. This was all wrong. He added, lamely, he had a fit. Poor man, isn't there anything they can do for him? It's shell shock or something. They were quiet for a while, thinking. Finn broke the silence. I probably shouldn't have told you that. It's sad. It's a sad story. I shouldn't have told it, he said again. Toward the end of the afternoon, when they all seemed talked out, his father said, and it was obvious that they had planned this, that if ever Finn wanted to leave, they would completely understand that what they cared about was his happiness, that's all. They wanted him to be happy. Finn assured them that he was happy. Finally, it was over. Visiting day had been a great success. Finn, however, felt sick. He had squandered what little progress he had made in the spiritual life. He had trivialized it. He had talked it away. Demore for months now. Mass and meditation, spiritual conference, and on and on, until litanies in chapel and so to bed. Then Father Larson arrived. He appeared one day at noon, silent, forbidding, entering the refectory behind everyone else. He looked ancient. His back was crooked, and he walked slowly, bent over. His habit hung on him like a shroud. But it was his face that was shocking. A thick scar ran from his left eyebrow down to his chin, pulling his mouth a little to the side so that he appeared to be sneering. The novices, observing custody of the eyes, pretended not to see him. They stood for the prayers before meals, and, when they sat down, Father Superior declared, Deo gracias, which meant that they were free to talk. Finn, who was waiting on the faculty table, noted that although the priests spoke quietly among themselves, Father Larson hardly spoke at all. Later, as Brother Quirk gave out laborandum assignments, he explained that Father Larson was ill. He was completely off-limits. No confessions and no spiritual advice. These were orders from Father Superior. Father Larson had been a prisoner on the Bataan Death March. He had survived torture and starvation, but he had never really recovered. So he was here to rest, period. The novices had many questions about the death march and about the torture. What had happened to his face? But it was work time, and Brother Quirk sent them on their way. So Finn felt deeply betrayed the next day when, coming out of chapel, he saw Brother Riley leave the line of novices and join Father Larson, who was waiting for him on the veranda. They exchanged a few words, and then, like old chums, took the path down to the lake. Finn went off to Laborandum to dig up more goddamn potatoes and wrestle with his jealousy of that fucking Riley.
Winter was long and cold, but at last the snow melted and Lent began, and Finn was a changed man. He no longer imitated Brother Quirk, or broke the rule of silence, or said witty things at the expense of his brothers. Moreover, he was content. He felt no need to perform. He listened while Brother Haberman told his stories about life in Dorchester, and he dutifully learned the names of Irish parishes in Southie, and when he and Brother Riley were assigned to the same work crew, Finn did his best to draw him out. They were planting those everlasting potatoes. The day was cool, but Finn felt uncomfortably hot, except for his hands, which were freezing. He was tempted to complain, but he concentrated on Brother Riley instead. Finn scooped out a hole and buried a chunk of potato, the eye facing up. I guess this isn't much like the Marines, he said. It is, as a matter of fact, mindless tasks and no women. Finn pondered this, shocked. How about that? I notice you walk with Father Larson. What is it like? It was an order from Father Superior for my mental health. Oh, and then... What do you talk about? I mean, what does he talk about? Baseball, sports. Sports? But he must talk sometimes about, well, about being a prisoner. Brother Riley punched a hole in the dirt and said nothing. He was pale with anger. Or about the death march. Cut it out. Would you just cut it out? All this shit, honest to God. Finn fell silent, and at the end of Labyrinthum, when Brother Riley said, I apologize, Brother Finn, Finn resisted the urge to tell him to shove it and merely said, I shouldn't have pried, my fault. Later that day, he learned that Brother Riley had been told that he would have to wait another year before taking vows. Poor Brother Riley. Finn went to chapel to pray for him. He didn't feel well. He had a pain in his chest and his breathing was strained. He was coming down with a cold. Never mind. It was another thing he could offer up. Semper Fidelis Brother Infirmarian was old and he was tired. Over the years, he had given pills to countless novices who had dealt with doubts about their vocation by working themselves up into a fever. Finn's temperature was 101, nothing surprising, so Brother gave him the strongest cold pills he had, the yellow and black ones, and told him to take a lie down, instead of laborandum for the next few days. A day passed and then another, and though Finn took the yellow and black pills, he was racked by a constant cough and dizzy with fever. His coughing distracted everybody during meditation, so he was sent back to the infirmarian. His fever was now 103 and he was badly dehydrated, so Brother Infirmarian, against his instincts and principles, admitted him as a patient deserving of antibiotics and his devoted attention. Finn began to feel better at once, and after his second day he hoped for visitors. Maybe someone interesting would get ill, Finn thought, just slightly ill, and he'd have a roommate to talk with. He should have guessed it would be Brother Riley. Brother Riley had had another fit, even worse than the previous ones. He woke, raging in the night, loud and obscene, with a soaring fever and a compulsion to talk. He was brought straight to the infirmary. Far from being company for Finn, Brother Riley continued his fit, mumbling angrily about whores and gooks and dead marines. This called for second all, Brother Infirmarian decided, 
along with his own private concoction of honey and water and a little whiskey for the love of God. Brother Riley slept through the entire day and then through the night, muttering the whole time. By the following morning, he had quieted down and showed signs of returning to himself. Around noon, he growled something unpleasant to the infirmarian, and toward evening, with a grunt and a moan, he acknowledged the presence of Finn. At ten o'clock, lights out for the great silence. Brother Riley had recovered sufficiently to attempt a chat. He was groggy, but plain-spoken. "'I disliked you from the day you arrived,' he said. "'I know you did. I disliked you, too. But I prayed about it.' "'Did it work?' "'Not really.' I'm sorry about your vows. Fuck the vows. This was too much for Finn. We're not supposed to be talking during the great silence. I'm not going to talk. Fuck the great silence. Brother Riley fell asleep then, and when he woke in the middle of the night, he was shaking with fever and his teeth were chattering. He called out to Finn. I'm sorry for what I said, Finn. Finn? Thank you for calling me Finn. I'm having a fit. How are you? We're not supposed to talk during the great silence. We could say the rosary together. Finn got out of bed and padded barefoot across the dark room to kneel down beside Brother Riley's bed. They said the glorious mysteries with Finn starting the prayers and Brother Riley responding. Finn was eager to finish and prayed fast. Amen, Finn said finally and Brother Riley said, Amen. Finn knelt in silence in the dark, unsure what to do now. Brother Riley made a choking sound, as if he were trying not to sob. Are you all right? Finn couldn't bear the silence. I wanted to be a Jesuit to make up for my life. To sacrifice it. No, to make up for it. To atone for all I've done. I wanted to make my life a sacrifice, self-obliteration, for God. You gotta be careful what you ask for, sometimes you get it. Another long silence. It's late, Finn said. Do you want to get in bed with me? Yes. Finn astonished himself because that was indeed what he wanted. But I don't think it's a good idea. It wouldn't be anything sexual. We'd just hold each other. Finn felt himself getting hard. I just want to hold you, Brother Riley said. I don't think I can do it. The truth is, Brother Riley paused, his voice shaking. The truth is I need to be held. Finn thought about this and shook his head. I can't, he said, and then, determined, I won't. He went back to his bed and tried to sleep. He could hear Brother Riley moaning, perhaps crying. Finn blocked his ears and turned from side to side. Finally, he got up and took one of the two seconals from Brother Riley's nightstand, and in minutes he fell soundly asleep. Finn woke the next morning, groggy and numb, barely aware that something was happening around him. Brother Infirmarian and Father Superior were wheeling Brother Riley out to the corridor where an ambulance was waiting to take him to the hospital. Finn turned his face to the wall, guilty. What had he done? 
but he had no time to consider what he had done, or, more important, what he had not done, because Brother Infirmarian had decided that it was time for Finn to go. He wanted his infirmary back the way it should be, empty. In no time at all, Finn was standing at the Demore bulletin board, where a notice from Father Superior suggested that, to prepare for the feast of St. Ignatius, they should all meditate on the vows. Finn was distracted in his meditation by thoughts of Brother Riley. Do you want to get in bed with me? He had wanted to, and he had nearly done it. He felt his face burn. He would go to confession during this evening's examination of conscience. But when the time came, Finn couldn't bear to tell all this to Father Superior, so he went to old Father Spaulding, the Greek teacher, who had taught at several different Jesuit colleges and had heard everything. Besides, he was a little deaf. Finn confessed that in the infirmary one of his brother novices had asked him to get into bed with him. He just wanted to be held, but I knew it was clearly an occasion of sin, Finn said, and I knew it was my own fault. Father Spaulding belched softly. That's all, Father. Father Spaulding sighed and said, I know. He gave Finn a long talk about loneliness in religious life and the importance of chastity and the danger of friendships that became emotional. He paused and, as if he were merely distracted, he said, Religious life is not for everyone, but be of good cheer and pray for a peaceful heart. Vow day came and went while Brother Riley remained in the local hospital. After two weeks, he was transferred to Shrewsbury Mental, and then he was released to his family. On his first day home, he shot and killed himself with his Marine service pistol, but not before writing a letter to Finn, saying, My death happened years ago and has nothing to do with you. Have a happy, holy life. It was signed, Love, Brother Riley. Father Superior opened the letter, as he opened all novice mail, and after he had considered the matter at prayer, he called in Brother Finn and told him of Brother Riley's death. Finn went white and slumped in the chair but said nothing. He put the letter in his inside pocket, next to his scroop beads, and went downstairs to chapel. He sat in the back pew and tried to think, but he didn't know how to think anymore, and old words kept circulating in his brain. Finally, it came to him that he was to blame for everything. Finn knocked at Father Larson's door and waited. He knocked again and heard a kind of grunt, so he pushed the door open and entered. The room was thick with smoke and smelled of whiskey. Father Larson was at his desk. He looked annoyed. He pushed his drink aside. I don't hear confessions. I know, Father or give spiritual advice, or listen to novices' sob stories. No. Father Larson turned his scarred face toward Finn so that he seemed to be sneering. Well, what then? I'm not able to help you, whatever it is. It's about Brother Riley. Father Larson pushed aside the book he'd been reading, the New Testament in Latin and Greek. He lit a cigarette and told Finn to sit down. What's this about Riley? It's about his death. Who told you he's dead? He wrote me a letter before he did it. Riley was a good man, a good Marine. 
an awkward silence, and then Finn blurted out, It was all my fault. He began to sob, softly at first, then louder. He choked finally and blew his nose. He said, I'm a mess, I'm sorry. Father Larson pulled deeply on his cigarette and waited. Finn told him of their instant mutual dislike. Mostly my fault, Finn said. He searched for the least offensive words and told him about the encounter in the infirmary and his refusal to get into bed with Riley. He wanted to be held, Finn said, and I refused. He looked at Father Larson and his scar and said, It's all my fault. Is it? Father Larson said. Or would that make you more important than you are? This caught Finn's attention. Father Larson tapped the ash from his cigarette and looked at him. As if that were an invitation to tell him everything, Finn began with wanting to be an actor and exchanging that for scroop beads and his struggle with the rules and on and on until he reached that desperate scene with Brother Riley. He wanted to be held. What he said was he needed to be held, and I refused. Father Larson sat back in his chair. He said to Finn, "'Would it have been so bad to get into bed with Riley?' Would there have been terrible harm to anyone? Do you mean I should have? Is that what you're saying? Father Larson hesitated and then said, I would have, poor shit that I am. Sometimes we have to risk our soul to save somebody else. But it would have been a mortal sin. Finn blushed. Because I wanted it. He paused. I wanted to get in bed with him. I was aroused. I had an erection. So I walked away and left him there. He paused again. I stole one of his pills and went to bed. The next morning they took him to the hospital. I'm to blame. I blame myself. A man kills himself, a sick man, and you, in a monstrous act of proprietary guilt, you blame yourself. Father Larson lowered his voice to a whisper. You, you, you. It's all about you. I really think you should go. I think you should leave now before it's too late. Finn made a choking sound. Leave, before you turn totally inward and rot. Leave, Finn echoed. Everything you've told me is about you. Your guilt, your blame, your pitiful erection. But I was following the Jesuit rule or trying to. You've turned it inside out. You're supposed to be growing in Christ, and instead you've been growing in self-satisfaction. The clock ticked on Father Larson's desk, and from the chapel came the sound of the bell for litanies. Then there was silence in the room, and it was terrifying. Is this because of Riley? Finn asked. Riley has nothing to do with it. Father Larson made as if to wash his hands. You should go. You should leave the Jesuits. That's the only help I can offer. That's it. Finis. The end. He sat back again. He was done with Finn. He had said the painful, necessary thing, and now they both had to live with it. He lit another cigarette. He was exhausted. He said, this is why they don't want me dealing with novices. Finn thought, so this is despair. Reading his mind, Father Larson said in a hard voice, Don't despair, kiddo. There are plenty of other ways to sacrifice your life. Two days went by. Finn found that he could not pray. 
He went through the motions of meditation, mass, and thanksgiving, but he was not conscious of praying. He was merely existing, a testament to shame and disgrace. And then, on the third day, he woke at 5.30, demore, yawned, and before going back to sleep, at that precise moment and with a joyful heart, he decided to leave the Jesuits, admit his failure, and let sacrifice find him when he was ready for it. He slept until nearly eight and got up just in time for breakfast. It was Friday, which meant pancakes, and he had three of them with extra syrup. He looked frankly around the refractory at his brother Jesuits. He admired them this morning, men who had made a free choice and, at great cost, were trying to disappear into the long black line. Finn did not want to disappear. I'm free, he said aloud. The other novices continued eating. Everyone knew that Brother Finn was impossible. Finn left that afternoon. He had Father Superior's blessing, and he made a last visit to chapel with no sense of regret. He felt comfortable in his jacket and tie. As he stood alone at the train station, he was visited suddenly by feelings of remorse. He wouldn't have it. I'm free, he said aloud again, just to hear it. And then he shouted it. The platform was empty, and it felt right and true. But with a year's grace behind him, unearned, undeserved, he recognized that this freedom was only temporary, and that the words he shouted to the empty air would in time come back to him, and back in a pale echo, Brother Riley, Father Larson. But for now, life was good, and Finn chose it. The train arrived, and Finn got on and left. That was Kirsten Valdez Quaid, reading The Long Black Line by John LaRue. The story was published in The New Yorker in May of 2018 and will be included in LaRue's story collection, The Heart is a Full Wild Beast, which will be published in December by a public space books. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten... tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future. 
so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Kirsten, Finn is this sort of fascinating combination of contradictions. He he joins the Jesuits, then he breaks all the rules, he mocks the other brothers, he resents them, he imitates them. Why is he there? Is he really trying? I think I think he is really trying. I think this matters so deeply to him. And he's also, what, like 20, 21, 22 years old, and... He's a cut up and he's a theater kid. And, he, you know, he, he has this faith and this longing and this desire. I mean, the, the word that he keeps repeating is this desire to sacrifice his life. And yet he also has this ambition to be on the stage. I think the fact that he is such a cut up is what makes him so lovable to me. Mm-hmm. The notion of sacrifice is sort of interesting in the story. You know, he says the best thing he could do with his life was sacrifice it. And what better way to sacrifice it than as a Jesuit? Why does he think the best thing he can do with his life is sacrifice it? And and should, you know, taking orders, should that be a sacrifice or should that be a fulfilling life? He's a little hazy on what it means to sacrifice his life, He, <laughs> he and which is why he only ever speaks of it um, in that exact abstract term. Why the Jesuits? I think the idea presents itself to him at this um, retreat when he's in college, and he's at a receptive period in his life, and it seems to answer this bigger need that he has, this this ambition. And and I think it's an ambition to distinguish himself, um, which, of course, (laughs) is in direct opposition to the Jesuit way as the Father Superior yeah. tells him. And and to the notion of sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, I think that's why the stories of saints are so appealing. You know, these ideas of martyrdoms and, you know, this religious life. And it for me, it's appealing because it's dramatic. And, it's, <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, all these people admire it. Um, which, again, is, is exactly the wrong reason to go into it. Um, right. But I do think Finn, Finn actually is authentically yearning to be charitable, to, to accept silence. Mm-hmm. I mean, later in the story, he refers to it as, as self-obliteration for God. And that line always sticks out to me because what does God gain from someone self-obliterating? I mean, if you think about it, aren't we all sort of created by God to be singular people, to be individuals? Exactly. I mean, could God possibly want that for, you know, one of his creations to to obliterate himself? And yet, you know, in in all the old stories, God seems pretty cool with (laughs) with (laughs) saints being obliterated. (laughs) So so they get their golden crowns. so it is, it's this funny contradiction in the teachings and in the stories, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, even the, the Father Superior brings it up, and he says that 
the good Jesuit may feel excited or depressed, but remember, he never shows it. He is never singular. He disappears into the long black line, and there's our title. In his mind, or in the in the mind of the church, is that disappearance meant to be a, a renunciation of the self? Or is it just about humility? You know, I have to think that he means it to be about humility, but when I read that passage, I'm so chilled by it. I mean, it's it's it seems to me to be a cruel thing to wish on anyone and to strive for. Um, you know, that, that denial of feelings came first, and what are we but our feelings? And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> one would hope that in living the good life, we would try to rein in some of those feelings of selfishness and but, you know, love is at the center of all of this and compassion. And, and those are feelings, too. Right. And and how does it serve God to suppress them? Yeah. And I think that's that's the tricky question. You know, that line, if you feel elated, exercise self-restraint. Um, <laughs> and, you know, there's that wonderful moment at the end when Finn has decided to leave the Jesuits and he sleeps in and he, you know, really goes for it at breakfast and serves himself three <laughs> pancakes. And there's this <laughs> elation and joy in that and, and pleasure in the world, you know, which doesn't totally seem to, to me to be going against any kind of faith or gratitude to, to God. But I, you know, I'm, I'm a bad Catholic, so. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the father superior. I am not the father superior. <laughs> I mean, you know, that being said, all of the priests in the story seem to have quite strong personalities. They are singular in their perceptions. There's a, there's a huge difference between Father Larson and, and the other priests, and that's allowed once you're at that level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the reasons I love this story is, you know, for I have so many reasons. And, you know, I I think it's so beautifully executed. I learned so much from it as a writer. Um, It's, you know, the way John sort of deploys tension and and emotion, I think, is just masterful. Um, But another reason I love this story is voyeuristic, really. I mean, it offers me a glimpse into this world that I could never have access to. And, and part of that is getting to know these priests as as people as these mentors to these novices. Yeah, and mentors of varying quality, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I asked I asked John about that line about self obliteration, in a Q&A we did, and he, he said, self-obliteration is a very questionable desire and one that marks Finn as a more suitable candidate for acting than for the priesthood. <laughs> he thinks of his desire for obliteration as love of God. He discovers it to be a perverted kind of love of self. I've known a few actors, and they had this in common. They were most truly themselves when they were on stage being someone else. So do you think in some way Finn is acting the part of a Jesuit novice and in, in sort of in the hope that his audience or or God will believe it? Absolutely. And I think so that he himself will believe it too. Yeah. I mean, the first thing we learn about Finn is that the Jesuits let him know that he seemed altogether too caught up in theater. I mean, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, the reader can't forget that this is his, this is who he is. And 
and there's always an audience. So the question is, who is his audience? Yeah, and it's interesting. So much of so much of religious practice, especially if you're a priest, requires you to be in front of an audience and sort of performing in a sense. Yeah, I mean that's that's an aspect of religion that I find so fascinating. This the tension between feeling and faith and then performance and the pageantry. And, you know, I'm in Rome right now and the pageantry is all around. <laughs> you cannot escape it. Um you know, I, I wonder, is it is it on some level a fake it till you make it thing? I mean, like, why, you know, <laughs> what what is the purpose of that pageantry? Um, it's definitely for Finn. I mean, we, we, we learn he's not good with silence, which is, you know, one of the main things that's asked of him. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, he, he has to fill the silence with his little quips. It's interesting because he is so funny, and there seems to be no room for humor, at least in this particular <laughs> um, group. And you wonder why, you know, if feeling is at odds with religious devotion, is humor at odds with religious devotion? It certainly seems in this community, yes. I mean, yeah. he gets constantly rebuked. He rebukes himself, and it does seem sad, though, <laughs> you know. Yeah. You know, humor is such an elevating, joyful part of life and such a point of connection. I mean, it's a way, it, so so often through humor, you, you make real connections with fellow humans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that, that's underlying the whole story is the, the sort of experience of war. You know, it's destroyed brother Riley and, and father Larson. But, you know, at one point Finn asks himself, why, if he's infantilizing himself, why is he here, you know, being silent and weeding the tomatoes when the other men his age are fighting in Korea? How, how do you think that backdrop sort of informs the story? It's interesting. You know, in early on in the third sentence, we learn it was 1954. And so, you know, this, this locates us in a very specific moment um, in American history. And there, you know, there are specific possibilities for young people at that time, um, men and women. And we know, Finn doesn't know, but there's, you know, the, the Vietnam War is going to be coming down the pike. It's, you know, it's, but it is, it's, it's an interesting question that he asks, you know, because it's this terrible violence where um, brutal things are asked of these young people you know, so is is Finn is Finn hiding out from that? Um, is is he just choosing not to be a part of it? I mean, there is a sense that Finn is hiding at the same time that he's sort of aspiring. You know, he's he's put a lot to the side and is avoiding thinking about it. Maybe that's what makes him such a bad novice. You know. <laughs> yeah, I just I love that opening when he um, when he first meets the others, and they're looking at the beautiful view and the cascading lawn with the trees. And and there's so much, you know, he, he wants to distinguish himself. He wants to make friends. You know, when it, early on, he's he's not trying to goad Brother Riley. He's, he's, John writes, you know, that he's attempting friendliness. He's trying to make connection. He's going about it all wrong, and that's not what's asked for him there. But, I mean, that that... There's so much vulnerability and eagerness. I mean, it reminds me of 
you know, freshman orientation. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That notion of, of human connection and, and sexual connection and all of that is such a problem in this story. You know, I, I thought it was hilarious when he, he thinks about his ex-girlfriend and and starts getting aroused, and he, he tells himself he has to think of Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb, which is like, well, why are you thinking about her? Like, think about Christ or something. Like, if you really want to calm yourself down. Oh, it's um, so funny. And and then, you know, this issue of his sort of arousal at the idea of getting into bed with Brother Riley. And, and why is that? Is it just because he hasn't touched anyone in months? Is it why why does that moment take on this sort of forbidden sexuality for him i mean in my reading he's he's been attracted to brother riley from the beginning i mean the the dislike is so intense and so strong <laughs> that, mm-hmm. you know and based on very little in the beginning and in my reading there's something underlying that there's something else that they dislike when they dislike each other and there's a reason he's Finn is so focused on Brother Riley throughout the story. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah, I mean, they're it's a lonely life. I mean, these these young people are told not to make special friendships, even. Yeah, and poor Brother Riley has is, is told to go and be celibate for a year and then come back. You know, <laughs> <laughs> prove you can do it. You know. What a horrible thing to tell someone. Um, do you think that Finn is, is right or wrong not to do what Brother Riley asks of him in that moment? Do you, you know, would it be a sin or would it be an act of compassion? Father Spaulding thinks it would have been a sin. Father Larson doesn't. My own sense of sin is, I think, a, a little more wobbly than, than <laughs> probably the Jesuits. Um, but... You know, this scene, I was worried actually in the reading of it that I wouldn't get through it without crying because I, I usually can't. And um, it's so, so painful, the nakedness of Brother Riley's need in that moment. I mean, to, to my mind, and I think to Finn's mind, he should have. I mean, his, his sense of guilt is gets muddied you know he he thinks maybe it's because he was aroused and he uh, you know or or maybe it's because he didn't reach out um I I think he doesn't quite know where he failed in that interaction you know it scared him it scared him it scared him and the first time I read this I wanted I wanted to go back and for it to be a different scene where where he does get (laughs) into bed and they do hug each other and hold each other and maybe have sex with each other. And yeah, I mean, to, to me, that is, it's such a heartbreaking scene. Yeah. And Finn resists, you know, getting into the bed because it might be sinful, but he has no compunctions about stealing his second all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Which is also a sin. Exactly. Um, exactly. And it's the scrupulousness that, um, does he scare himself? Um, is it that he is so close to having this thing he desires and he just can't let himself? Um, I mean, I I have to believe that he truly thinks it's a sin. I mean, he's he's been steeped in this world. Yeah. Father Larson 
says sometimes we have to risk our soul to save somebody else, you know, he's acknowledging that Finn might have saved Riley if he'd gotten into bed with him. Whereas in, you know, in the breath before and in the breath after, Father Larson is accusing Finn of monstrous self-importance, a monstrous mm-hmm. act of proprietary guilt in, in taking on <laughs> that blame, you know, and so both are true. Both are true. Finn is making it all about himself. And also Finn might have done something to lessen Riley's anguish. Made a difference. Yeah, he might have made a difference. But what I think the most amazing thing in this story is that letter that Brother Riley sends to Finn before he kills himself. Uh, you know, what an amazing gesture to absolve him in that way. And, it, you know, it requires him in the, in the moment of being preparing to die to think about how Finn might blame himself for not responding that night. And at the same time, it makes it clear that Riley expects Finn to be so narcissistic (laughs) (laughs) that he will try to take credit for this suicide, you know, and Riley wants to head that off of the pass. It's just sort of so complicated and fascinating that Riley would send that letter. I mean, that's love, isn't it? I mean, that's true love to not only see the the other person for who he is as, as, as this narcissist who will take credit, um, but also to to make that gesture, to offer consolation. Yeah, yeah. Do you think the Father Larson is right when he says that Finn has been growing in self-satisfaction? Has he or has he, you know, made leaps in his selflessness? I mean, I think after this interaction with Brother Riley, he he has to understand more about himself. I mean, he he does. I mean, um, and I think the very fact that he feels guilt and regret for not consoling this man and who's in so much pain, I think it does show that he has he has grown. Um, you know, at the very end, he he calls the last year grace with a year's grace yeah. behind him um, for all the struggles and for all of his failings. He sees it as a gift. Right. Where, where has it taken him? I mean, I know what I wish for Finn. I, I, <laughs> I, you know, I want, him, I want him to have a life in which he is able to accept the joys around him, a life in which, you know, he is able to see the need of others and to meet those needs. Um, I, I want him to go back to acting <laughs> to, <laughs> to get on the stage. Um, yeah. I want him to, to take pleasure in his wit again and to make people laugh and to, you know, to, for him to laugh as well. I have to do his rabbit imitations freely. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe after this year's grace, he it, the laughter won't be at the expense of others as much. But I mean, that's probably too much to <laughs> to hope for. <laughs> and as a reader, I would I would be disappointed. Well, John told me that he he struggled a lot with this story. You know, it took him more than a year to write it. And um, he wrote to me. He said, "Version one had Finn in his fifteenth year as a Jesuit at Harvard, working for his PhD." Version 2 was a 35-page study of the involuted life in the novitiate. Version 3 was a cut section on Finn's life after leaving the Jesuits. 
version four is in the New Yorker. Wow. Uh, he says, I hope I, I hope I finally got it right. Why do you think he would have sort of hovered around this narrative for so long? It was difficult for him, you know, and obviously it does draw on his experience, but, but he stayed for 17 years. He didn't leave like Finn. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to think that after 17 years, the, the choice to leave was even more complicated and fraught. Um, I don't know. It's not something I'd ever spoken with John about. Um, I, but, I, you know, I think to sign up for the religious life and to be pursuing these higher ideals and the, um and then to and then to turn away from that um i i can only imagine that it was it must have been just an astonishing shift in in yeah his existence i mean the experience both in the story and in his life is such a complicated difficult one and then to make it f- as funny as this story is at times, <laughs> I mean that—that's the sort of master masterpiece there for me. Oh, I just love the scene when his parents come to visit and <laughs> they come bearing all these gifts, and he says, "Well, I probably won't be able to keep the sweater. Isn't that wonderful?" <laughs> <laughs> and they're so upset by that. It's so funny. I mean, it reminds me of, you know, a freshman who, you know, goes home after the first year of a, and announces <laughs> that, I don't know, gender is a construct to, you know, her grandmother or something. It's, <laughs> um, you know, he's so full of the things he's learning and so proud of himself. And, you know, of course, his parents are, <laughs> they fear that they'll lose their son. I think they also fear it was just the wrong choice for him, that he's not suited for it, you know. They're so used to being able to scold him for his his choices in life, and they can't scold for this, but they can't imagine him fitting in. Well, and they're totally right. I mean, yeah. His, yeah. the way his father says, you know, rules are rules. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you made your bed. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's so funny. But in some ways, you know, Finn, you, you asked about, you know, why not have Finn leave after 15 years? Why have him leave after one year? And it's such it's such an interesting question you raise because, I mean, dramatically, you'd think that after 15 years, when if Finn had given, you know, a decade and a half of his life to this to this existence, that the stakes would be higher leaving then. Um You know, whereas Finn, his parents have already given him an out. Everyone's given him an out. Brother Riley on day one (laughs) gave him an out. Um, And so in some ways it lowers the stakes, you'd think. But, um, you know, as a reader, it doesn't. Still, when he he leaves on that morning after gobbling those pancakes, you know, it, it feels like such a massive shift. Yeah. And it scares him, too. He's on that platform sort of terrified yeah yeah he's talking himself into it i'm free he said aloud again just to hear it (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know this this story is is like other stories of john's um and i'm thinking of the the rise and rise of annie clark and that involves someone who is not especially admirable 
and his personal personal traits, but who wants to be considered remarkable in his faith. Mm-hmm. You know, John said lots of lots of awful people, mean spirited and intolerant and worse, want nonetheless to be found pleasing in the eyes of God. And some of them think that religious life is the way to go about it. Some succeed and become saints; others just get more annoying. <laughs> but they. <laughs> But they offer their fellow priests or nuns the opportunity to exercise virtue. And this reminded me also of a story of yours, of uh, Christina the Astonishing, which was the origin story of a saint who was absolutely unbearable to everyone around her in life. But I wondered if you were thinking of John's work when you wrote that. Um, you know, well, I read this story after I wrote that, and, and also The Rise and Rise of Annie Clark I read after I wrote that. But I... I yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one thing that John's work did for me is is helped me to see people in religious life as fully human. I, you know, as as a child going to mass, I, it seemed so alien that life to me. And um, I think without some of the windows that his his fiction gave me, I think it would have been much harder for me to write about um, people with, you know that kind of intensity of, of faith. Yeah, it's sort of territory that feels so specific to him. You know, I know other people <laughs> other people address it, but this way of looking at the church and the flawed people within it and the flaws of the system, but at the same time, as you said earlier, with so much generosity and compassion, it seems just the, the defining quality of his writing. Absolutely. And he doesn't lose sight of what the foundation of this church is and, or should be, which is love and compassion. And, you know, and, and you know, for all, all of the sort of wicked senses, you know, the, the poking fun and, you know, there's sometimes meanness um, in, in the humor. He's never, he's never cruel and he doesn't lose sight of, of the fact that this is should all be based on love yeah well thank you so much Kirsten thank you John Leroux who died in April of this year spent 17 years as a Jesuit priest after which for more than 30 years he taught American literature and creative writing at Stanford where he was the longtime director of the writing program his books include the novels The Medici Boy and The Shrine at Altamira and the short story collections Desires and Comedians. A posthumous story collection, The Heart is a Full Wild Beast, will be published by Public Space Books in December, and his final novel, Beggar's Pawn, will be published by Random House in the summer of 2020. Kirsten Valdez-Quaid is the author of the story collection Night at the Fiestas, which won the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize and a 5 Under 35 award from the National Book Foundation, among other prizes. She has been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2009. You can download more than 140 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.